Will you please turn with me in your Bibles once again to the second chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, where we are going to be looking together at verses 23 of chapter 2 and reading through chapter 3, verse 6. That's Mark chapter 2, 23 through, verse, through chapter 3, verse 6, and you can find that passage on page 982 in your pew Bibles. Well, it's been a few weeks now since we've looked together at this very Christ-exalting account of the gospel. So please allow me to just quickly remind you of where we are in our look together at the gospel according to Mark. You will remember that we're dealing with a section here in Mark's gospel account where we find Mark exploring the growing controversy or the growing conflict that had arisen between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees. And in doing so, I hope that we've been able to come to grips with why it was that Jesus Christ so clearly despised the sin of hypocrisy. It is a heinous sin against the Most High Majesty of Almighty God. And we've defined it several times throughout this series. It's simply playing a role for all of the wrong reasons. And then having the audacity to stand in judgment of those who, though broken, are seeking the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ for their remedy. And Jesus would not allow that kind of evil to go unchecked. I've said several times now that we need to understand the difference between the two sets of people who make up the visible church of Jesus Christ. There are those who have built lovely lives upon a faulty foundation of sand and who, though their homes appear to be beautiful and strong and secure actually have no hope of withstanding the storms of this life because they are not built upon a foundation of rock. And there are those who have built houses upon the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ, and though they may look to be in need of care, they have all the support that they could ever truly need. The former have indeed built a comfortable life upon the sand with faith in Jesus Christ as a subtext to the rest of life. While the latter have built a life upon the rock of Jesus Christ with the rest of life itself as a subtext to their faith. And the Pharisees, of course, would have been closer to the first group. And they hated Jesus for exposing the shallowness of their vain religion. And so they constantly looked to accuse him. And beloved, I hope that a certain amount of irony here has not been missed by us. Perhaps you've caught it already. The Pharisees bring accusations against Jesus in each of these five scenarios that we've been looking at. And the accusations they bring are really the very truths 
that fill the people of God with both wonder and comfort when embraced through God's precious gift of faith. Have you caught that? We've looked at three of them so far. You remember what they accused Jesus of when he healed the paralytic man who had been lowered down by his friends through the roof of the house into the presence of Jesus. Remember, before he healed him, Jesus first did what? He forgave the man's sin. And so the Pharisees and all their make-believe piety declared, this is preposterous, only God can forgive sin. Not being in possession of saving faith, they were outraged by the audacity of Jesus. Whereas biblical faith falls on its face before Jesus Christ and runs to him for the forgiveness that only God can give, that we so desperately need. Only God can forgive sin. The second accusation arose from the fact that Jesus, after calling Levi that dreaded tax collector to be his disciple, was found to be celebrating, dining with Levi and his friends, other tax collectors and known sinners. And of course, the Pharisees were appalled, and so they declared about Jesus, why this one eats with tax collectors and sinners. It is outrageous. While the eyes of faith see the same scene through tears of joy, and proclaim through faith, praise God. This one eats with tax collectors and sinners. Sinners just like me. And the last time we looked together at this second chapter of Mark, we looked at the third of the five examples where we found Jesus confronted with this question, of why he and his disciples were not fasting when all of the other spiritual know-hows were clearly fasting. Even John's disciples were fasting. So the accusation from the Pharisees and the scribes was along the lines of, look, this man is claiming to be a great teacher. He's claiming to be a rabbi. He's teaching and he's healing. He's even rebuking his betters, his superiors. But look at the lack of discipline that is so evident in the lives of his followers, his disciples. I mean, they're not even fasting. How dare they pretend to be religious when they cannot even bear the self-induced struggle of fasting. And Jesus again highlights the hypocrisy and the all-around lack of understanding of these men through three sort of quick-hit parables, if you will, pointing out to them how much of their so-called understanding was really nothing more than an exercise in missing the point. He takes them to the heart of their misunderstanding through his examples of the wedding feast, the tailor's shop, and the winemaker's cellar. We just talked about these. I'm not going to rehash them all again this morning, other than to say this. In all three examples, one truth shines through very brightly. Jesus did not come to add himself to the old fabric of your life. He did not come to add himself to the traditions of men. He did not come to make your life just a little bit better. He came to give you a brand new life in him. 
He did not come as a welcome addition to the religious systems that men have developed in order to feel good about their lack of righteousness. He did not come to sanctify all of the law-keeping that the Pharisees and the scribes supposed that they did. He came as the fulfillment of the actual holy law of God. The fulfillment of it. The substance behind the shadow. He did not come to be a welcome addition to practices that were not ever pointing towards Him at all. He came to make all things new. He did not come to add to the traditions of men. He came bringing life to the dead. He came to give new hearts of flesh in the place of old hearts of stone. Beloved, you do not need man-made rules and the grace of God in order to be saved. You need to be united by faith with the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Period. And this morning in the text that is before us, we're looking at the final two examples given to us here by Mark. And you will see that both have to do with the Sabbath. And the heart that drives us either to be oppressed by it or to celebrate it because of Jesus Christ. So let us now look to the word of God together this morning. I invite you to follow along with me in your Bibles as I read the gospel according to Mark. Again, chapter 2, picking up with verse 23, reading through chapter 3, verse 6. Hear now the word of our Lord. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he entered the synagogue again. And a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. When he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for your word this morning. We pray that you would clear our hearts and our minds of the many, many things that distract us in this life. That we might give our full attention to the glorious truth of your word and hearing that word through the power of your spirit. That we might be transformed by it for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. In all these examples of this conflict that is brewing between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees, we find that the Pharisees' accusations of Jesus are the result of their being offended. These men are perpetually offended. Jesus forgives sin, and they are offended. Jesus came to heal the broken and the sinful, to touch them, to sit with them at table, to dine with them and celebrate with them, and they are offended. Jesus does not place an expectation upon his disciples to keep their man-made regulations, such as so much fasting, and they are offended. And beloved, I want you to see this morning that the pattern so evident here in the gospel according to Mark is not mere coincidence. It's given so that we might see it. This is what self-righteousness and its subsequent legalism always does. It gets offended. It gets angry. It stays offended. It justifies any and all offense and anger and lack of love towards fellow image bearers. And that offense ultimately leads not to the joy, the comfort, and the rest promised in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but in fact to its opposite. It leads to anger and irritability and an all-around restless life. And so first and foremost this morning, I want us to see that before we begin, I want us to see that before we begin to dig into the next big question regarding Christian practice and piety that Jesus is dealing with here. There is a warning here that you and I simply cannot afford to miss. Do you see it? Legalism and self-righteousness are the direct result of hypocrisy. They're exactly what hypocrisy gives birth to. And I fear all too often that we are far too sympathetic towards these things in the life of the church of Jesus Christ. Do you know what I mean by that? We see it, and we refuse to call it what it is, Because after all, they could be doing so much worse than spending all of their time trying to be more righteous. Right? Have you ever thought that way? Have you ever said it to yourself? Are you saying it to yourself right now, even as I call it out? I mean, they seem more serious than me, so... I think I'll just leave that one alone. I should avoid being drug into conflict over something like that. I don't want to lead them away from that. I mean, they could be doing so much worse. Well, beloved, I want to be clear where I stand. To that I say, with all of my being and all that I am, it is utter nonsense. It is a lie from the pit of hell. 
Have you noticed how important this is to Mark? Here where he has been so laser focused to get before your eyes the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he has taken the time to pause and to go through this great series of conflicts in the life of Jesus Christ with the established leaders of his day. Why? Why would Mark do it? Because it's to show you, beloved, the great enemy of the gospel. Now, we think of the enemy of the gospel and we think of things like Satanists and atheists. And though they're enemies of the truth, I'm going to tell you they're not nearly as dangerous as this. Hypocrisy. Contenting yourself to play act in faith. Play act the faith. Hypocrisy always gives birth to graceless faithless, self-righteousness, and legalism. And Jesus went after it like he went after no other sin in this life. Have you ever noticed that? Do you believe that this morning? I would encourage you to look at the witness of the Word of God because it's overwhelming. And so as Mark finishes this necessary section in this text before us, I want for that warning really to remain ringing in our ears. We must have faith alone in Jesus Christ alone by the grace of God alone if we are ever to have life. Real, joy-filled, gospel life. Jesus plus anything and everything else only distracts from the God who has revealed himself to us in this way. So let's consider our text a little bit further this morning. In these final two examples, we have another question coming to Jesus. And it rises out of another concern, another accusation made by the Pharisees. And we're going to see Jesus here in this text deal with the question. He answers the question. And in answering the question, I think he points his people to yet another blessing for them, another gift flowing from true faith in Jesus Christ. So that's how we're going to break this down. We're going to look at a question. We're going to talk about an answer. We're going to talk about a blessing that flows out of that truth. So first, let's look together for just a moment at the question itself. And the question, again, coming from the Pharisees involves both the behavior of the disciples of Jesus Christ and his own apparent lack of care in what they were doing. The question is essentially this. Jesus, why do your disciples break the Sabbath? And why are you a supposed or a self-proclaimed religious leader? Why are you so apparently unconcerned? over this horrific, even blasphemous behavior. The second half of that, I think, though not stated directly, is quite easily implied from the accusation itself. These men are not just calling out the disciples. They rather have their sights set on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as the real problem. And if we're honest, they see him as the real threat to their religion. So it's him that they need to discredit. 
And it's him that they must get rid of. And I want to spend a minute here considering the behavior of these questioners because of what I said already about hypocrisy and its subsequent legalism and self-righteousness at the outset of this sermon this morning. Things have ramped up a bit here. No longer do we find these men simply stumbling upon Jesus. They're not near him because of any mere coincidence. They are following him around. They're looking to accuse him. Have you ever noticed that? You understand, the disciples, they're not in the synagogue here. They're not present at a celebration which would draw the attention of the crowds to them here. They're not in one of those massive crowds where Jesus is busy healing the sick and the lame. And neither, for that matter, are the Pharisees. No. The disciples are walking through a grain field, looking for nourishment for their bodies, looking in hunger for food. And the Pharisees are there. And they're just sort of watching guard over them, looking for an opportunity to make some more accusations against the character of this Jesus of Nazareth. And I think there's something very helpful for us to see here. Beloved, let me ask you something this morning. Have you found yourself convicted at all? As we've been talking rather in depth about hypocrisy and legalism and self-righteousness over the last several weeks? Perhaps you found yourself wondering at times if your own heart might be in danger of some of these things. Perhaps you're even aware of your own tendency towards self-righteousness and legalistic practices in your approach to the Christian life. But you tell yourself, you know, I see some of that in me, but how how can I really know? How can I really know if it's self-righteousness? How can I really know if it's legalism? How can I really know if it's hypocrisy? I think the text that is before us this morning goes a long way in helping you to discern that. Have you noticed what the Pharisees have not done in their approach to what they perceived to be the errors of Jesus Christ? It's important. I think often we see these men as just tragic characters who were unfortunately very, very sincerely wrong. They were just confused, cloudy in their thinking. They were just too hazy. Things were just hazy for them. And so they just barely missed the point. Beloved, I want to state very clearly this morning that I do not think that that is the case. And I feel as if Mark here wants us to know that it's not the case. There's no sincerity here. Just anger. Just disgust. Just constant taking of offense. These men are not just merely mistaken, they're hypocrites. According to Christ. And the fruit of their hypocrisy proves it. These men are not concerned for Jesus or his disciples. Have you noticed that? They're not pleading with them from the scripture. 
They're not asking Jesus for clarity and trying to see maybe where it is that he's gone wrong in his reasoning. They are simply immediately offended and they want to let the offensive one know. You understand, they're mad. They're angry. How dare this one come and ignore the careful regiments that we have defined our very lives by? It's outrageous. And so they make the sum of their very existence to be all about getting rid of these lawbreakers. Never loving them. Never sympathizing with them. Never for a moment seeking to convert them. Never being patient with them. Never teaching them. Just get rid of the threat. Can you relate to that this morning? Look at what your motives lead you to do. It will help you discern where it is that your heart actually is. Look around. Look around the church. What would you like to see happen with some of those around you who are not really anything like you? Beloved, I say it to say it should at least give us some pause in our judgments. It should serve as a warning about a warning to us about who and what we're willing to divide with the body of Christ over. Right? Well, Jesus answers the question that these men pose to him. And I want to tell you that to these men, his answer is every single shade of offensive. Couldn't be any more offensive. Have you ever considered how Jesus answers this accusation? Who it is that he's speaking to when he says what he says? He, of course, points them to the Word of God, the only source of truth for faith and life. However, he asked these teachers of the law, these scholars of the Scripture, these so-called authorities of the Scripture, he asked them, have you never read? I mean, a good reform guy takes offense at that, right? Can you imagine what these... What these Pharisees are thinking when Jesus looks at them and he says, have you never read? Better yet, let me up it one. Have you never read what David did? You know, King David, the great king of Israel. Have you never read about him? You can imagine the response to that. And then he proceeds to teach them. David. The great king of Israel, of course they'd read of David. But you see what the folly of legalism does here, right? It ignores the intent of the law. It goes to mere external observance and it seeks to simply check things off a list. There's no end to the madness then. I want to tell you, I read over the last couple of weeks just how bad the traditions would get about this. And I know a lot of them. I've heard ridiculous things in my life. I, this one was way over the top. I couldn't do it justice. You could not toss an object into the air with one hand and catch it with the other hand because that might be work. Breaking the Sabbath. One was only allowed so many steps on the Sabbath. Just the necessary amount of steps. 
I read of a church in Europe during World War II that would send out its elders during the worship service every single Lord's Day to catch Sabbath breakers and bring the civil law to bear upon their souls. As if the elders themselves were better off playing the morality policeman in the streets rather than worshiping God with his people. That's how ridiculous this gets. The spirit of legalism. The highest virtue has absolutely nothing to do with the heart because it is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. Play acting at religion. All husk, no kernel. All shadow, no substance. The disciples were not even breaking the Sabbath according to the law of God. Just as David and his men did not break the ceremonial law regarding the bread of presence, when he and his men did essentially the same thing, and they ate the showbread or the bread of presence, which was not to be eaten by any except the priests. But these men, these Pharisees, had adjusted the holy law of God, and consequently they reduced the law of God to be all about externals. They had said that to gather heads of grain, to break them off and to eat them, well, sounds like harvesting. That's work, right? That's work, which was breaking the commandment to keep the Sabbath holy and not work. Beloved, do you hear the faultiness in their own reasoning? Here they are on the Sabbath following these men from the field so they can see that they're harvesting to feed themselves. It's work. As if the law of God were simply a code that we crack through our beating unreasonable obstacles. As if we could overcome the harsh demands of the law with a little bit of good old-fashioned sweaty brows and ingenuity. Again, it's an adventure in missing the point. How do people get there? Well, if you believe that the way you get to God is through the exactitude of your legal obedience, to merely keep the letter, not ever considering the spirit behind it, this is exactly where you will end up. And you'll wonder why it is that you're angry all the time. Like the Pharisees. Self-righteously walking around to catch the ones who just aren't as good as you. That aha, I got you, harvesting, most definitely working. Got you. We have you, Jesus. Your disciples are breaking the Sabbath. What do you have to say for yourself? They were able to ignore the heart and live in the external, to ignore the substance and thrive in the shadow. Beloved, we still need to be on our watch for the spirit of legal obedience, don't we? We are drawn to this all the time. It certainly has not gone away. But Jesus sets them straight. He answers them. Look at what he says. And I want you to understand, he's in no way rejecting the Sabbath principle here. He's clarifying. He does not say, no, 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 there's no longer a Sabbath rest for you to be considering. Now, ultimately, we know that our rest is entirely in him, but he points them to the principle 
of the Sabbath. And he shows them that the Sabbath was created to be a blessing to the people of God and not a curse. It was never meant to be oppressive. It was never meant to haunt us. Legalism looks at a rule and it makes it oppressive to measure levels of dedication. However, legalism never ever elevates God's law. It only diminishes it. It trivializes it. It's not concerned with holiness as God sees it, but as hypocrites see it. Do you see that here? It is so much worse than just a sincere miscalculation. It robs even the law of God of the spirit behind it. It makes the intention of the law to be all about rote obedience, going through the motions, rather than what scripture says, which is a schoolmaster or a tutor to lead you to Christ. And it always produces wicked pride in its adherence, which always leads to anger and rage. It never produces humility and a love for God and his people. Once again, Mark is mindful, beloved, that we need to see Jesus Christ and his gospel. Because of who Christ is, because of the gospel, the Sabbath is a blessing to us for us to rejoice in. The spirit behind it is necessity and mercy, and we see it in both of these examples. Do you know what the showbread was even for? We focus in on the rule. <laughs> Only the priest can eat it. Do you know what it was for? It served to point us to a much bigger purpose than just 12 loaves of bread on the altar. It pointed to something bigger, bigger than the ceremony. Flesh wants to live in the ceremony, but according to Jesus here, necessity is more important than the ceremony. Shocking, but I'm going to say it again. Necessity is more important than the ceremony. David and his men were starving. They were on the run, running for their lives. That bread pointed to God's providence for his covenant people. That was why it was there. It pointed the people to the providence of the covenant God who was faithful to his covenant. The priests were to place it on the altar every Sabbath as a symbol, an emblem, a reminder to the worshipers of the covenant promise and faithfulness of God for the provision of his people. Which is what it literally became for David and his men. How silly would it have been if the symbol were the very thing that failed to provide what they needed most from a God of perfect providence. Do you hear that? Do you believe it? I want to tell you, beloved, it was something to rejoice in. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh, the seventh, set that one aside. Not to oppress the people of God, but to give them rest. To give them a break from the world to feed their souls. To celebrate God's covenant faithfulness. 
to remind them of the glory of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Beloved, it's wonderful. Are you here for something else this morning? Is this your approach to the Lord's day? Is it your joy to be here this morning? Or are you just, you know, checking all of the boxes? Is Sunday oppressive for you? I'm going to return to that in just a moment. First, I want to just quickly point out another principle to you in the second example. The principle of mercy. The Sabbath is about necessity. It's about what we need and should rejoice in. And it's about mercy. God's mercy. We do not deserve it, but God made it for us. The legalist is content to have the Sabbath be all about him. His observance. The faithful in Christ celebrate God's mercy to them on this day. They rejoice in it. It's there in the second example, the fifth of the five conflicts, the last one. Consider the scene. Once again, synagogue is packed. Jesus is there. There is the man with the withered hand. And over there, of course, are the Pharisees waiting to pounce. Again, no longer just seeing the person and work of Jesus Christ by just happening to be in the same place. They're actively looking for him. They want to be where he is. They want to catch him. And we learn in verse 6, they want him dead. They want to destroy him. They want to kill him. They want it so badly that they're even willing to consult with their enemies. It's easy to miss here. Do some research on who the Herodians were and what the Pharisees thought of them. But now they're willing to consult with the Herodians to make the death of Christ a reality. And Jesus looks at this man with the withered hand, and he turns his attention to the Pharisees, and he asks them, tell me, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And of course, the Pharisees wanted nothing like they wanted to kill Jesus, even on the Sabbath. And so they didn't answer. Because for them, the Sabbath was all about killing Jesus. This isn't the first time they're trying to catch him. The Pharisees, who taught that they had the corner on Sabbath understanding, wanted nothing like they wanted to kill Jesus, the Sabbath breaker. You hear the folly in it, right? The hypocrisy? And so Jesus asked the man then to stretch out his hand and we're told it was restored. It was made new and whole as the other. And the outraged Pharisees leave to put their wicked plans into place once and for all, never for a moment, seeing the mercy of Christ and healing on the Sabbath, the blessed day of rest. They just retreated into their anger to become the murderers that they truly were. Beloved, the Sabbath points us towards the blessing of being one of God's people. It's His mercy. It drives us to the loving arms of Jesus Christ where alone we can find life and the only cure for what truly ails us in this life. And Jesus, He's the Lord of the Sabbath. I didn't establish this. This is what Jesus established in the face of men who didn't get the Sabbath because they didn't have Christ. And 
And this Lord of the Sabbath bids you to come and to taste of His mercy and to live new, resurrected, joyful life in Him. Beloved, will you do it? Will you embrace it? Or will you cling to the false hope of road obedience and live out your own adventure in missing the point of all of it? If you're willing to do that, I'll be the first to tell you, you are missing the point of Christianity altogether. You're missing it. I pray that we would all run to Jesus and that we would all together celebrate and rejoice in the gift of his day. Amen? Let's pray.